So hello and welcome to this Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jasani. So today it's my great pleasure to welcome Nicola Kalendra. Nicola is a diplomat of the European College of Veterinary Surgery and she's currently working on the soft tissue surgery service at the RVC's Queen Mother Hospital for Animals. So thanks very much Nicola for joining me today. So Nicola, today we're going to talk about something that you actually suggested as a topic to me which is ureteric obstruction in cats. Now, I should say at this point that actually I spent a long time trying to decide if we're going to call it ureteric or urethral, and I wasn't really sure what the upshot of that was, so we're going to call it ureteric. Um, And just to be clear for the listeners, most people will be more familiar with the problem of urethral obstruction uh, in tomcats, or so-called block cats. But today we're actually talking about obstructed ureters, And I should also say that there will definitely be a podcast on blocked urethras at some point in the future. So, Nicola, one of the reasons that you suggested doing a podcast on this topic, I think, was that not just us here, but other referral centres also seem to be seeing more cats with obstructed ureters. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Um, Ureteric obstruction has emerged as an increasing problem in clinical practice. And um, do you think that this is because... It's actually a problem that's happening more often, or do you think it's so that vets in practice are now more kind of aware of it and are therefore picking it up more? I think it's probably a combination of factors, and certainly there's a true increase in um, the predominance of the disease, as well as probably an improved diagnosis. And we also suspect that a proportion of cats previously diagnosed with acute or chronic renal failure actually have. Um, um, and you were That's interesting. So, <clears throat> so we probably, me included, have probably missed this problem at some point in the past. <laughs> I would Is like to say, but possibly, <laughs> yes. We, we obviously can't say for certain, but it's possible. No, that's, that's fair enough. Um, and so <clears throat> we know that obviously cats, poor old cats, are basically plagued by urolithiasis. And presumably in the context of blocked ureters, are we talking again about it mainly being a problem that's caused by intraluminal obstruction by stones? Yeah, the vast majority are caused by um, stones, although there are a proportion of cats that have um, um, strictures or neoplasia, either in the ureter or the trigone, causing um, subsequent ureteric obstruction. And do you think it, <coughs> with the vast majority, are we talking 95%, that kind of, is it that much relative to the other causes? Yes, because even the cats with strictures, um, they're um, most likely secondary to a stone so in the fine. first place. Excellent. And... Again, these questions are always difficult because I know a lot of the the published literature comes from laboratories in Canada or something in terms of the types of stone. But do we have any any sense of which type of stone is more often implicated in blocked ureters or not really? Yeah, so the calcium oxalate is the one that um, we and other um, centres um, see the vast majority of cats. I think it's um, just under 100% of cats, about 98%. In dogs, it's more like about 50% of um, cases that have calcium oxalate stones. And I'm sure you know these are the ones that you can't um, dissolve medically. Yeah. And um, cats tend to be persistent stone formers. Okay, and we'll talk right at the end, I think, about <coughs> recurrence and... Um, Again, that, the fact that it's calcium oxalate, I think, obviously has some, some relevance in that respect. Um, <clears throat> and then we get on to the kind of physiology, really. And again, I think we've discussed before, I'm not really that mad on physiology per se, but I do think that people have to have some level of understanding about what is going on in their patient from a physiological or a pathophysiological point of view to then be able to understand why they're doing the, the management that they are. 
Um, so with that in mind, can you kind of explain in basic terms essentially what happens if your, one of your ureters becomes obstructed? So um, after the um, ureter is obstructed, you get um, an increase in ureteral pressure immediately and um, the renal blood flow decreases um, significantly in about two weeks um, after the obstruction. It's only about um, 20% of normal. Um, the um, glomerular filtration rate subsequently decreases and you get an influx of leukocytes and subsequent fibrosis. Um, the contralateral kidney then has an increase in glomerular filtration rate and um, the longer the um, ureter is obstructed, the, the more damage occurs to the um, kidney. Okay, and so um, <clears throat> one of the things I guess that we... We often think, I think even in the context when we discuss blocked urethras, is this concept of kind of pressure-induced damage. So do we, we're basically saying that in the context of having a blocked ureter, there is some degree of pressure-induced damage to the kidney that is blocked. And then, as you say, the things that occur secondary to that. And do we have um, kind of particular types of cats that we tend to see this problem more often? Obviously, with blocked urethras, it's a thing that clinically we see mostly in males. But in terms of ureters, is this a problem that can affect any particular type of cat, or is it a possible diagnosis essentially in, in any cat? I suppose in any cat who's seen it in domestic short hairs and a variety of exotic breeds, um, and in cats from 2 to 17 years old, so it really can affect any, um, any age and type. And so do you know, is 2 the youngest report that's been reported? Or? It's the youngest cat that we've seen here, um, I think you could probably get in younger cats as well, but... Um, Less common. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, <clears throat> and I guess one of the things I wasn't very clear about with this disease, again, it's something that I think a lot of us are becoming more familiar with, but was that the ones that we see here um, pretty much come and from the moment they present in the door where, at least the ones I've seen, maybe those are the ones that sort of bias through ECC maybe, but you have this as a possible differential from that point in time. But clearly we're seeing a kind of referral population. I do get the impression that our first opinion service vets are also kind of more attuned to the possibility of this, but probably, again, because they work here. And I guess what I was wondering was, I'm presuming there's going to be a pretty wide spectrum um, of possible findings with these cases in terms of what history the owner might report, what you might find on physical exam, and what you might find on kind of clinical pathology testing. And I guess that the reason for that is that there are kind of various stages of this disease that might occur and that you might be seeing cases that have kind of variable degrees of, of progression. So could you kind of just try and explain a little bit more about the spectrum of the patients that people might see with this problem? Yes, we've seen quite a variety, and certainly we've seen cats where it's been picked up incidentally. So, um, like certainly cats that have had um, biochemistry performed as, um, because they were getting older or before an anaesthetic, okay. where they may have picked up an azotemia and the referring vets have investigated it in more detail and discovered that the um, ureter is obstructed, um, or um, where radiographs of the abdomen have been taken for other reasons and they might have found some radiopaque calculi um, overlying the ureters. Okay. So, um, it can be in a variety of different presentations. On the, other ha on the other extreme, we've seen them where they've been quite poorly, they've been hypovolemic, and they may have had one kidney that's obstructed in the past, and they, um, they've got um, an obstruction of their, their other kidney, and um, obviously they're quite sick at that stage. See, that's interesting, because I think, um, you know, like, since, since I've come back to work here, we, the ones that I've seen have been that second population, the sicker ones. 
but I guess as an emergency and critical care service, that's not really surprising. Um, so, so it's interesting to know that, that there is this spectrum. And I think that um, <clears throat> one of the things that took me a while to kind of get my head around was something that you've already alluded to, but was this kind of notion that you obviously have two kidneys, two ureters, one ureter may become obstructed, and the patient may, to some extent, remain clinically completely normal insofar as what the owner might tell and may not even present for presentation until the second ureter becomes obstructed. And one of the things that um, people often refer to is this kind of big kidney, little kidney type of presentation. And I know we've already alluded to it, but I wondered if you could just summarize again. If, so, if someone's seeing a cat that they think has a big kidney and a little kidney, what has most likely happened to that cat to get to that situation? Well, we know these cats are um, repeated, some of these cats are repeated stone formers. And what we suspect happens is that um, at some point in the past, one kidney has become obstructed um, and it's subsequently fibrosed and become an end-stage kidney. But at that stage, because the other kidney is functioning normally and uh, we know that about 75% of um, nephrons need to be um, damaged before we might see an azotemia, um, it might be that nothing's picked up at that stage, but then they form more stones which obstruct the um, the other ureter, and that's where they present. So with the with the sort of <coughs> an end stage, one kidney is end stage, the other kidney is hydronephrosis. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Sometimes we see it where um, uh, both kidneys are obstructed at the same time, although that is more unusual. Okay, interesting. Um, and <coughs> so I guess if if you're a vet in first opinion practice, to some extent, what you can do about these cases or how you become alerted to them, as you said already, is going to depend on exactly what's going on with the cat. But at what point does a vet in first opinion practice need to think about whether they're able to investigate and manage this problem or whether they are all referral cases? Do you have a sense of kind of what sort of recommendations we, would, we should be making to first opinion practitioners about if they suspect this problem is in the patient they've got, how yeah. they should go about approaching it? So if you've got an azotemic cat that might be um, hyperkalemic, hyperphosphatemic, might have um, calcium as well, um, or you're suspicious of a stone former for another reason, you might find crystals on urinalysis, and it might be worth taking just some abdominal radiographs. Sometimes you can see the stones because they're radiopaque. You can't always see them, and certainly um, abdominal ultrasound scan is recommended to investigate it further. I know when I was in practice, I probably wouldn't have been able to have picked up a stone on ultrasound, but I know there's yeah. a lot of people out there that are a lot better than <laughs> I was. All the time, yeah. um, you yeah. might see um, like a hydro... Um, um, nephrotic kidney, you might see um, a dilated ureter, you might see the stone itself. And there are other techniques that we can use, um, probably aren't available in first opinion practice, but you know, certainly that's something that you could do in practice, abdominal ultrasound and radiographs. I mean, one of the things that um, <clears throat> on ECC we try and, and when I'm doing CPD with first opinion people and so on, is trying to get people to engage more with their ultrasound machine and to understand and kind of set their expectations at a reasonable place. And so, because I'm always saying to people about looking for free fluid, and then people think, oh, I can't scan the intestine, so I'm never going to pick up my ultrasound machine. It's about saying, well, actually, finding free fluid and scanning the intestine are two very different things. And I think my kind of, from what I've seen of people that are, that are new to using the ultrasound machine, finding kidneys and having a sense of how they look and how big they are is not that difficult. And especially in a cat, it's usually quite small creatures. So I think there is, yeah, I think you're right, there's probably going to be a growing number of people that can pick up abnormal kidneys with an ultrasound machine. Um, and then palpation as well, I guess, because sometimes it's kind of glaringly, glaringly obvious. Um, and so I guess that brings us on to 
Well, probably we should talk about, if we get referred a case with this, what further additional diagnostics would we do here that perhaps people couldn't do in practice? And then we'll talk a little bit about what the treatment options are. And again, I think this is quite a difficult topic in the sense that it is, to an extent, dependent on what stage of the progression the cat has reached in. But um, nonetheless, let's, I guess let's focus on the kind of big kidney, little kidney type of scenario. What more diagnostics might we do? And then we can talk about what treatment options are available. If we've got evidence on a, an abdominal ultrasound scan that there's um, um, a complete obstruction of a, a ureter, to be honest, at this stage we, we don't tend to do any further diagnostics. If it's a bit equivocal, uh, we could do something called an anti-grade um, pilogram where we um, use ultrasound to guide a needle into the renal pelvis to remove some um, um, urine and to inject some contrast. And then we take some um, fluoroscopic images to um, document the obstruction of the okay. ureter. Traditionally, we would have done things like an intravenous urogram, but we find because the renal blood flow is severely affected, um, it doesn't necessarily give us a, a good answer. Uh, you can do the same thing on CT as well. Okay. Um, and, and then in terms of the treatment sort of situation, um, I guess we've touched on the medical, but we should probably reiterate that, and then surgical. And then I know that um, there's a growing movement towards kind of minimally invasive techniques and then also I guess if people can't afford if owners can't afford for these cases to be referred I guess we need to talk also about what treatment options might be available in, in the first opinion environment as well so I mean we said with the medical that because mostly they are calcium oxalate they're not going to be stones that can be amenable to be dissolved but is there any medical therapy that we can try with a cat that we, ha we think has an obstructed ureter in having a crisis as it were Yes, so um, intravenous fluid therapy sometimes just by um, trying to flush the, um, the stone out um, and can be used. Um, there is some proof that medical management um, isn't the best for these cases. Um, some people have tried uh, mannitol and amitriptyline in the past. Um, but unfortunately, these cats, they don't tend to have a, a very good prognosis. But certainly if money isn't an option, um, intravenous fluid therapy is, is worth, a, worth a go. So basically trying to flush the stone down the ureter into the bladder? Yes, um, yeah. Where it will sit? Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and again, this is sort of a, a basic question in a way, but in terms of how aggressively do these do we diurese these cats? Do you have a sense of what the recommendations are? Is it twice maintenance fluids and some mannitol, or is it? It's a really fine line, to be honest, and I'm not sure if we even know the answer. Because <laughs> no. um, we find a lot of these cats, um, they tend to have um, like heart murmur and by fluid overloading them if their kidneys can't actually uh, get rid of all that fluid that you're giving them they're like a likely risk of pulmonary edema and, and yeah. other problems so it's a really fine line you have to do, be quite cautious uh, for giving too much fluids as well and I'm, I'm pretty sure that we've seen at least one cat that comes to mind that that a, a kind of aggressive fluid therapy was tried prior to referral and it was essentially in congestive heart failure so I think so. That's a real issue that we're saying basically that you can try medical therapy. It may or may not work in terms of just moving the stone. Um, and I guess the the situation in that respect is a little bit different in terms of whether this is one ureter, one kidney versus this is the kind of the second kidney now, and the other one is also end stage. And I guess in terms of the urgency of situation, uh, it, to an extent, it depends on that. <coughs> if um, if you're in first opinion practice and you're faced with somebody that presents you with a cat 
where you think one kidney's fine and one kidney's one ureter's obstructed, and you try the fluid therapy and it doesn't work, what is in, in the first opinion environment? What is going to be your your choice for that cat next? It's Do you think one side is okay, the other side's obstructed? It's a very difficult thing because uh, that cat, that cat might never have a problem with its other kidney, um, and just by treating it conservatively, it might be fine for that individual cat. But if it is one of these cats that does form stones repeatedly, um, if we can um, sort of decompress that kidney, uh, the obstructed kidney anyway, it might be that we could try to halt the, the disease process. What the right answer is, I don't think we know, but certainly trying to uh, like doing a surgery to um, to bypass that ureter would be would probably be indicated so for some even if we have a cat that's at the moment appears to be unilaterally affected we would still be recommending to try not to sacrifice that kidney on that side because we don't know how things are going to progress and i guess you give the, the cat the best chance of having a good long future if you try not to sacrifice that kidney but i suppose there will be some cats where that one kidney is essentially being sacrificed because that was all that seemed to be available therapeutically at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I got uh, drubbed into me every nephron is sacred. <laughs> That's so true. Number 75%. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. And um, if, we then, if we then, I guess, take the situation where they, they come to us with only one side affected and we think the other side is okay, what, what do we do with those unilateral type of cases? It would be very much a discussion with the owner to see what would be best for them. Um, the, the surgery to, to bypass the, uh, the ureter is, um, it is a fairly big surgery and it can be quite expensive. So it depends very much on the, you know, the owner, that individual cat, uh, and what they want. Um, typically, if we do have um, a complete obstruction, um, we do recommend um, surgical decompression. But um, if it's a partial obstruction, you know, medical management, um, so fluids, etc., would be would be indicated as well. Okay, so so sending us a sort of cat that has unilateral a unilateral problem, insofar as can be diagnosed at the time, won't necessarily change in the end what's done with the cat. But it gives it gives us options to potentially not sacrifice that kidney if the owners choose to try and do something more aggressive. And then I guess if we move into the situation where you've got one of those big kidney, little kidney cases, so we've got one kidney that's end stage and essentially, for all intents and purposes, has very little residual function left. And then you're now presented with a cat that has got its other ureter obstructed and a hydronephrotic kidney. What there, in first opinion practice, is there anything that we can offer? I guess we're talking again about seeing whether you could diaries that stone out again, but... With a lot of, <laughs> I can see you kind of frowning at me already. <laughs> but I mean, I guess that's all. I guess that's all in the first opinion world you could offer. But let's say we are seeing, you know, that cat is referred to us, which I think is um, from ECC's point of view. Anyway, those are sort of cases that we end up seeing as referrals and then passing on to you guys, are often in that place. And so, what what do you do with those kind of cases that have reached that big kidney, little kidney stage, and they have an, an evidence of an obstruction in the ureter? We know that the longer the, um, the ureter is obstructed, the more damage it is to the kidneys. So we obviously try to act promptly to try to save as many nephrons as we can. Um, but obviously sometimes these cats can have quite high potassium, so it's quite important that we, we stabilise them prior to any anaesthetic. Um, and um, the, the current... Um, 
um, surgical technique that we employ is um, placing something called um, a subcutaneous urethral bypass system. So it's essentially a little tube that connects the renal pelvis to the bladder via a little subcutaneous access port. Um, traditionally, techniques to, to just incise over the stone and remove it have been associated with fairly high complication rates um, of urine leakage from the site. Um, they can stricture down, and because these cats form more stones, they can mm. have subsequent obstruction. And we have um, traditionally placed um, stents in as well, so a permanent device that connects the kidney to the bladder within the ureteric lumen. Um, but we found that there's quite a high um, complication rate with, with the stent. So we've moved to the subcutaneous urethral bypass system. Um, how the cats do in the long term, it's impossible to say at the moment. But we find, because it's fairly quick to place, that these cats said to have a, have a better outcome. So, um, so firstly, just to summarise, I guess, for the listeners, so... In terms of surgical interventions, then, traditionally, the only option was essentially cut into the ureter and try and take the stone out. The cat ureter is something that comes up all the time, but it's something like three millimetres wide, is that right? Yeah, it's tiny. tiny. Um, So the notion of cutting into it would never be that palatable, but I guess that was what I say people did. Then the stents are essentially just, um, well, what they sound like, really, they are a stent between the kidney and the bladder that runs through the ureter. What were they made of? Um, uh, Ultra-high molecular weight polyethylene, I believe. <laughs> I'd have to like check that, that yeah. Right, so they literally just, they just kind of act as another lumen in the, in the ureter, basically. Yeah, so it's them. another lumen. They're filled with little holes. So they allow urine to flow through them and around them as well. And they're quite good because um, in lots of cases we didn't have to cut into the, uh, the lumen of the ureter. So... Um, um, traditionally, we'd have to use a, an operated microscope or surgical loops to be able to see the ureter because it was so small. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of taken from the humans' field where um, they use these devices. But um, in humans, they were just used as a temporary measure and um, it was associated with quite high uh, um, morbidity for the patients. They were our patients reported flank pain, dysuria, and lots of other problems. And certainly in some cats, we found that they did have um, cystitis that was um, not responsive to medical management. So we sort of moved away from that. We thought that these cats um, can't have a good quality of life with the stents, so there must be something else we can use. And certainly these um, sub-devices, the subcutaneous mutual bypass systems, the um, the, def- the um, tube that enters the, the bladder is quite far away from the, um, the trigone, which is where we suspect the irritation took okay. place related to the stents. And so the subcup, the, the, what we call them subs, right? Yes. So when yeah. I came back a couple of months ago to work here, I said, what the hell is a sub? Everyone's going on about a sub. <laughs> <laughs> Quick did a bit of reading on that. Um, so the subs essentially basically from the renal pelvis to the urinary bladder and, and uh, essentially sitting kind of via a subcutaneous port. What do, we, what do we do with that subcutaneous port? Is there a use for it at all? Yeah, so um, it's useful for us to, to check that the, the system's working. The current recommendation is that it should be flushed at three months to make sure that the, the tubes are patent. Okay. We can also take um, urine samples from there just to check that there's no evidence of infection. And um, two questions, I guess. One is, those cats that have a sub placed, are they able to just have a normal life post-placement? Or? Yeah, so far most of the cats that we've placed them in have had a, a fairly good quality of life. And they like to go out if they normally went yeah, out? Yeah, absolutely. Or? It's just underneath the skin, so it doesn't affect their everyday activities. And um, in essence then, that ureter that has the stone in it, we've sort of we said we're bypassing you, and what happens to the ureter? Well, actually, we find that the um, quite a high number of stores actually pass spontaneously. Okay, so now they've got a sub 
bypass and the ureter that's patent again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the stone, um, we suspect that when you uh, take the pressure off the ureter, it just relaxes and like normal peristalsis allows the stone to pass. So, um, And presumably the sub is not prone to occlusion then? By stones. It is actually, and um, there are some reports of, um, of this, the um, the tube, especially that connects the kidney to the subcutaneous portal, becomes um, encrusted with a mineral, and um, sometimes you have to replace them. It's not something that we've seen here yet, but it has been reported. That's why we have to keep a close eye on these cats to make patient. sure that they're they're doing well. So I guess one of the things that, not being a medic per se, in terms of with forming urolithiasis, how much does having kind of mucosal tissue present contribute to that? I have no idea. <laughs> so I guess I was thinking, because this is obviously artificial t- material, but it is still prone to obstruction in, in some way. Yes. Um, and so the subs, I think, started being placed in the States, was it? Yes. Um, so do we have any retrospective kind of stuff about data published on how these cats are getting on? Or? Not at the minute. No, uh, most of the information that we've learned has been sort of anecdotal from speaking to the, the people that have placed it originally, and they've probably placed um, hundreds by now. Uh, it's certainly something that we're investigating here at the RVC. And um, yeah, we don't know how they do with the long term yet, but uh, we're trying to follow these cats to see how they do to, to give subsequent cats and owners some more information about them. Okay. Um, and so when you were saying that if we had a unilateral patient um, where the other kidney was, was fine, would we still offer a sub for the kidney that was affected if that's what the clients were willing, wanted to go for? Because you know, we were saying before about, well, if they've got one side affected, we can try diuresis, see what happens. But we would potentially offer a sub for that one, yes, even though the other one yeah, seems absolutely. fine. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, and I guess without talking specific numbers, has the cost of treatment changed significantly between surgical ureterotomy, stent placement, and sub, or is it pretty comparable? Um, it's actually a bit less to put the sub in because the, the surgical time is less. Okay. It's very fiddly to, to place the, um, the stents and um, certainly the, um, just, just removing the stones on its own. It was quite, um, it took quite a long time as well. Um, so it's actually um, cheaper to place the sub um, and it's actually better for the cats because these cats obviously got a degree of renal failure and giving them a long anaesthetic isn't in their best interest. Yeah. And so do you have a sense of how many institutions, veterinary institutions, are, are doing the sub placement at the moment at all? I think there's quite a number in America. In the UK, I'm not entirely sure. I think probably about two or three. Okay. And so there are people still doing stents? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the other thing was that my... Because I guess, as I say, the cases that come through ECC, they're typically all pretty azotemic, big kidney, little kidney, etc. And I guess one of the things we don't know, so we're saying, okay, one of your kidneys we think is end stage, has very little residual function. You are now pretty azotemic. You have a blocked hydronephrotic kidney on the other side, and we're going to try and resolve that obstruction now by doing a sub. Do we have any sense of how many of those cats then go on to have a decent amount of function in that kidney that's left, and does their azotemia actually resolve, or in how many cases have we found that actually they have remained very, very azotemic and their quality of life is not very good at all? Certainly with the um, stent cats, we found that... um, um 
quite a high proportion of them have um, an increase, uh, have improvement in their creatinine, for example, within 24 or 48 hours after the, um, the surgery. But um, there's quite a high proportion of cats that do have um, a degree of uh, renal failure, and how high is, is very variable. Sometimes um, the, the surgery itself is too much for these cats. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes these cats can have um, you know, quite uh, moderate to severe renal failure for, for the rest of their lives. But some cats, um, after the surgery, you know, they've still got um, quite a high proportion of their kidney function left and they're able to, to have a good quality of life for, for the long term. But it's very variable. Um, and is there anything that we can do to answer that question pre-intervention or...? Not really. No, it's something that we're looking at um, in detail, but um, there's no indicators that we can find at the moment that might tell us um, um, you know, how they'll do with the long term. So it's very much a, this is a kind of last resort, but we have to see how the cat does post-intervention. Yes, yeah. Okay, that's cool. I can hear your page again, <laughs> which, is, which is great. Um, I think we're pretty much... Um, at the end, anyway, we've discussed about that. So the last thing I guess I want to just touch on quickly before I let you go was the recurrence rates. And obviously, or, or more to kind of stress the fact that if, if um, especially if they're calcium oxalate stones that are forming, that these cats may go on to have recurrence of obstruction. And in essence, I suppose that is just the reality of cats being plagued by, by stones. And again, when we do a podcast on blocked urethras, I guess we'll come, we'll come and talk about that as well. Um, I think that's fine, actually. I'm conscious of your pager, and we're, we're pretty much at the end anyway. So um, is there anything else that you wanted to comment on before we, we finish? Is there anything that I've missed out, we haven't discussed, that you can think of? Or no, we've been quite comprehensive, so. but uh, <laughs> I'm happy if anyone's got any questions to, to contact us. I'd be happy to chat to them about any cases they've got. Yeah, no, awesome. Okay, great. Um, so that's kind of all we've got time for then. And I think, um, Nicola, thank you so much for coming and joining me, and I hope that um, we can come back and talk about other things in the future you might become the the feline urinary tract lady (laughs) Um, and to the listeners as always and yeah do feel free to get in touch and provide us your feedback Um, and of course if you've got questions about this particular podcast that i can route to nicola please feel free so you can email me directly at sjasani at rvc.ac.uk you can use the royal veterinary college's facebook page um, or you can tweet us at royal vet college using the hashtag sa Clean pod. Um, and until next time, then do take care of yourselves. Bye bye. <laughs>